the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, mass market unicorn stampedes and crafty green panted ghost riders in the sky, heading them toward you. And more great audio drama featuring Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, set in the hard magic Grimnor universe. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with best-selling author Simon R. Green about his new contemporary fantasy novel, Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated now out from Bain at booksellers everywhere. And we continue with the audio drama presentation of Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas. First, here's the news. Giddy up, you prime stallions and mares. Get on to them bookstores. The September Bain mass market paperbacks have arrived. First in is The Valkyrie Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. The crew of the transtemporal vehicle, Cleo, must travel to the past to prevent the collapse of the universe. To do so, they need help from throughout time and the multiverse and must collect it. Time is running out for Raybert and his team, but the crew of the Cleo won't go down without a fight, no matter where or when the threat to their home comes from. And out in September in mass market format is Night Watch by Tim Akers. John Rast went to the Ren Fair looking for a fight, a simulated fight with blunt swords and safety equipment. But when his final opponent turns into a real living fire-breathing dragon, John finds himself in the fight of his life, for his life, and that's when destiny comes to call. John is asked to join Night Watch. Nightwatch by Tim Akers and The Valkyrie Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow are now available at booksellers. And remember, when a book goes into paperback format, the ebook price decreases as well. So get a bit more get along with this excellent science fiction and fantasy at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Simon R. Green to the podcast. Hello, Simon. Oh, Tony. Great to be here. Simon R. Green is the New York Times bestselling author of more than 60 science fiction, fantasy, and mystery novels. Simon sold his first book in 1988, and the very next year was commissioned to write the bestselling novelization of the Kevin Costner film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. From there, he went on to write many more series of books, including Deathstalker, Nightsides, Secret History Series, Forest Kingdom, uh, and probably about a billion more, and the Ishmael Jones mysteries, which I hope we'll talk about a little bit today, among others. His books have sold more than 3.8 million copies worldwide and have been translated into more than a dozen different languages. Out now, at Booksellers Everywhere, is this really cool book, Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated by Simon R. Green. Um, Simon, where is... Uh, this is this is a new series for you. I mean, it's a new concept, or or have you written in this world before? No, it came out of uh, meeting my agent Joshua Billness and Jabberwocky at the Dublin Worldcon, and we were talking about the fact that he said I could use some high concepts, and I was talking about how when I grew up, I loved the old Universal horror movies, Karloff and Frankenstein, Lugosi and Dracula, and so on. 
And it just occurred to me, like, whatever happened to the old monsters? You look to the end of the 19th century, people on the whole believed in these things. Then you get to the 20th century and suddenly they didn't believe anymore. I just started thinking, well, what if? What if the monsters decided they couldn't survive the, uh, the bright lights of modern technology and decided to go underground? The minute I thought that, I thought, yeah, but there's one monster who wouldn't lower himself to do that, who would insist on being a monster, and that would be Edward Hyde. And the minute I thought that, okay, you've got the monsters on the one side, Edward Hyde on the other, I think I can do something with this. <laughs> Where it started. So we start out, though, with a uh, in, in modern London uh, with a cop, Daniel Carter. Um, Tell us a little bit about Daniel as as we begin. Uh, he will perhaps become something else. We don't want to give too much away. We're not going to totally give you the, give the story away, but let's just say he's the main character, and it's called Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated. What say so you've got this setup of the of the an underground war going on between monsters on one side, Edward Hyde and his group on the other. And I thought, what if you brought an outsider in? and said to him, look, there's all these terrible things going on in the underground. I thought, well, who would care most? A cop, an authority figure. And I had him banging up against the monsters and it all going horribly wrong. And he gets a chance. He's offered Dr. Jekyll's elixir. He says, you can be a hide. You can be stronger, faster. I can make you into something that will fight monsters. And he wants this because he is what we used to call an old-fashioned cop. He's in it because he believes in it. He wants to protect people. And he has to make, you know, the devil's dilemma. Do I take something that will turn me into a hide? The other hand, will allow me to fight the things that I think are worth fighting. And of course, he makes the decision, he takes the elixir, he becomes a hide. And that's when he starts to understand the situation isn't necessarily what it seems. And we're off and running. Yeah. Well, prior to that, um, he is, uh, he, he's in a pretty pretty down and out state he has been sent by um what's her name Con commissioner gill um to uh to to raid what he and his fellow cops think is a uh is a chop shop of some some sort of organ ring explain that um okay basically you've got we start off with four cops meeting in uh, a late night cafe they're all cops who went into it with the best of intentions, with high hopes, great ambitions, but it didn't work out for them for various reasons. In comes the commissioner and says, right, I've had some intelligence that there's a group out there who are doing illegal surgeries. They're uh, taking people off the street, stealing their organs and selling them on. I will send you in there. If you can bring them down, I will use this to get you back on the fast track to put you where you should be. You get it wrong, I never heard of you. And of course, they all think, well, this is something worth doing and also something to help us. So they decide to try and take on what we call the chop shop, the, the, uh, the organ rustlers. But when they get there, it's not just organ stealers. This is the Frankenstein clan. These are the descendants of the original Frankenstein who are running this worldwide operation. And when they get there, it is so much worse than they could possibly have imagined. And Daniel basically watches his three friends killed in front of him, and he ends up crippled. The only reason he doesn't die is because they left him for dead. So he comes out of it. Of course, Commissioner Gill has 
disowned him, the cooperation has gone wrong, so it's nothing to do with her. He's trying to tell the authorities, look, I was there, I saw the Frankenstein doctors, I saw the monsters they made, and no one's believing him. So he's kicked out the cops, he's crippled, he's lost everything he believed in. So when he gets a chance to be a hide, to be repaired and made strong again, and a chance to get revenge and to fight people who are fighting, He's going to take it. He's gonna, and he's been, um, what his, uh, he's lost his job. He's lost his money. Um, he's, uh, he had relate. Uh, he doesn't have any family anymore. Right. He's pretty much, uh, he's been disowned by everybody. Cause everybody thinks either he's crazy or he's making up a story to excuse getting his three friends killed. He's literally on his own, a cripple with nothing to live for. That's why. He's able to say, I will take the risk, I will become a hide, I will do whatever it takes to do something to put this right. Yeah. What and I like about Daniel is, right from the beginning, he has a strong moral code. There's a line he will not cross. He's there to protect people, and he's seen this terrible thing, and having seen it, he cannot look away. He has to do something, even if it means making the devil's bargain with Edward Hyde. Yeah. And it's that moral sort of foundation that that can survive into a monster monsterdom into a sort of transformation. It's um, one of the things that interested me. I thought that the, the Jekyll and Hyde situation is actually more complicated than we think. There is a, a, a basic mystery at the heart of the original story by Robert Louis Stevenson. Why would good, even saintly Dr. Jekyll want to take a potion? that would make him into evil Mr. Hyde. I thought, what if that was never the point of the, of the potion? What if it was simply to make you more than you were? And what it did was, it brought out what was there. Jekyll, we assume, had this uh, very darker side that the uh, elixir brought out. When Daniel takes it, what's in him is the need to fight monsters. So the potion makes him into someone much more capable of fighting monsters have taken the fight to them. And that's what makes it interesting. Yeah. And um, we also have a love interest. I don't know if it's a love interest so much as a, a partner in this. In, uh, he teams up with, uh, and you see on the cover, uh, a, a very monsterly but kind of seductive. Um, well, I saw the cover. And my first thought was smoking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Tina is is a woman. She was a, a wild child. She was, you know, a party-goer, uh, anything, drug, drink, drug, sex, rock and roll, a lot. And it basically destroyed her. Edward Hyde found her, saw potential in her, gave her the, the Hyde potion, and she bounced back to become essentially someone who will take on the world and everything in it. She's, I think free spirit is the right thing, but she is not so much in it to protect people and to fight monsters. She's in it because the monsters are the only real match for her. They're the only thing worth fighting on her level. She delights in going into battle. She delights in taking on monsters. So you put her and Daniel together, they're doing the same thing for very different reasons. But as they go on, they each find in the other something that they're both lacking in themselves. You put them together and you end up with a whole that's greater than some of their parts. I think watching the two of them grow together is what gives the uh, the book its its spine. It's what you hang everything on. 
Yeah. And, uh, and, and also of course, the fact that they are just killing a whole lot of monsters. <laughs> oh, they are fighting things that need fighting. I have gone back to the original sources for the Frankensteins, the vampires, uh, the mummies, the original 1930s version of the mummies. And I said, look, these were really appalling things. They, they were, they preyed on humanities. They're predators. There is nothing good about them. There is nothing that you can look to and say, well, you've got a point of view. No, they are predators. They are vile. They are evil. They must be fought. So basically, you can, when Daniel and Tina get stuck in, I think we're all standing up and applauding and cheering them on. My favorite bit is when they actually have to sneak through the sewers to get to one particular monster clan. And the uh, the monsters have dropped a whole bunch of, of alligators into the sewers to defend it. And the highs just basically pick them up and flail them against the walls and beat the hell out of them just to, as a warm-up, just to get their blood flowing before they get to the actual monsters. Yeah, that's, I mean, the the fun of, of knowing, uh, especially as we've seen uh, Dan weakened uh, and, and then him being able to come back and, and be just a tough tough guy um beyond the realm of of humans even and and to identify with that sort of rise uh, fall and rise again is is so much fun with the book i want to stretch it a bit you could almost say it's like captain america you've got small weedy steve rogers takes the elixir and becomes huge powerful captain america yeah the um humans that we're dealing with here who are um let's talk about the clans because they're fun the way you've set them up for the frankenstein clan um what what do they do um it, so the clans have the clans of monsters have have sort of gone underground and many of them have taken on uh their their forces behind like large areas of crime they've each taken over a specific area um the horror behind frankenstein is essentially that he is medical knowledge gone feral it's what happens when you put morality to one side and just say what can be done. The Frankenstein clan are dealing in organs, dealing in trying to make people stronger, faster, longer lived, and so on. But although they like to say they're in it for knowledge, they're actually in it for the money and power that they accumulate. And they don't care how many people they destroy in order to get that knowledge. They are what happens when you take the human element out of medicine and just say, what can be done? Um, you've got uh, the vampires. They are the ultimate predators. They, um, they have the glamour. I mean, a, a vampire is essentially a corpse that has dug its way out of its own grave in order to feast on the blood of the living. And they are able to pass in our society because they have a glamour. We don't see them for what they are. We see this, 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 this uh, idealized image. So what the vampire clan does is to sell. They can be anybody. They can suck you in, give you your, what, what you think you want, give you your dreams, your hopes, your fantasies. But of course, once you're in their power and they start feeding on you, they become the masters. They become the, the powerful ones. Then you've got mummies. Well, obviously, the mummies dealing drugs. Uh, tanner leaves and so on, that they are, they were the first ones to try and have immortality in this life rather than the next life. And they've spent the centuries working on all kinds of drugs to essentially, again, put themselves in a powerful position. 
They don't care about what it does to them. They don't care about addiction, about destroying lives. It's about the money and power that they accumulate. Then you've got the werewolves, and the werewolves are essentially the muscle. They hire out to the other clans to enforce the, um, the laws of the, of the monster clans to protect them from outside interests. They are what happens when the animal in humanity takes over. They're about running wild in the moonlight. They're about appetite. They're about teeth and claws and the joy of slaughter. So in each case, the month, it's one separate really bad aspect of humanity writ large and taken to its extreme that defines what each monster clan is about. I like the um, the thing about the mummies is kind of cool is that, that um, they have sort it, it's sort of a turn on the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the idea of of, of all that alchemy that arose from uh, looking at at it's a, so it's a lot of research on uh, Egypt and mummies for a book I was writing and what came out of it was that I, mean, I loved the original Boris Karloff mummy movie. That first 10 minutes in particular is absolutely superb. And it's, the Egyptians had a fascinating culture. I mean, they didn't live long, 20 to 30 years, and you were an old man in, in ancient Egypt. So they became fascinated with, with what happened after death. They actually mapped their afterlife. They worked out exactly what it was, what it would be like, how, how you would end up in it. And you ended up with the ritual of the mummy. But then I thought, well, what happens if you decide you don't want to be immortal in the afterlife? You want to be immortal right here on Earth. And you put those two things together, and the mummies, the, uh, the search for the afterlife, the, the interest in alchemy. The Egyptians actually came a really long way in what we would now call basic chemistry. A lot of it got lost under centuries now to be rediscovered. If you look at the, what they actually achieved working with so very little, they really were a surprisingly advanced culture in many ways. Yeah, they seem like, I mean, in the book, to me, they were hard to take on. Um, because, I mean, Edward, I mean, uh, uh, sorry, Daniel and Tina could jump in and, and kill a lot of monsters. It was, it, there was a subversion, a subversive sort of breath of death thing about them that, that was scary to me. They're already dead. You can't kill them. They are preserved corpses. And I, I do do a bit in the book about the fact that they've lived for thousands of years. They don't even recognize the world they live in anymore. It's become so different from what they started out in that they can only deal with the world through a whole series of intermediaries. They can set policy, but that's about it. And when they actually meet Daniel and Tina, what I like about it was that both, both of the hides embody all the powers of life, of energy, of commitment, of compassion, and so on. And the mummies are just cold, killing machines. So you put the two together, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, one, other, uh, one other personality that, that it permeates the book is Edward Hyde, who you've talked about a little bit. Um, he, he's an interesting fellow. He's, he's not... Um, He's neither fish nor fowl, and he's not necessarily good, but these guys, but Daniel and Tina are working for him. Yeah, I went back to the original uh, short novel by, by Stevenson, and it's interesting that 
we tend to think of him as this huge, powerful, Hulk-like creature. In the original book, he was actually quite small. He was he's described as dwarfish. But everybody had the same reaction. When they saw him, they hated him on sight. It's like he had the mark of Cain on him. He was... They could look at him and tell that he was evil. And Edward Hyde, as I write him, is someone who was does not have a moral code of any kind. He will always do what is best for him, what is in his best interest. But that doesn't make him stupid. He's still got a range of human emotions. He's still got all the, 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 the intellect that you would expect of someone who's been around for, you know, for almost 200 years. What's interesting about Edward, to my mind, is that throughout the book, he is the one person who knows what's really going on. He understands the situation. He's got his own plan, his own agenda, which nobody else is really clued in on until the end of the book, when Daniel and Tina finally get to the big revelation of what's really been going on all this time. And he does have, I don't know if I call it a softer side, should we say a more human side? I introduce um, a little old lady who's, who's running the, the Hyde Armory. And it turns out that when she was a young woman, she was Hyde's lover. And there is that scene in the book where, where she's talking to Hyde. And you can see Hyde can still, he still reacts to her. He still remembers the relationship and it does have an effect on him. I don't think he was ever in love with her. But there was something there, a connection, and you can see it. So her character, I have to say, she was never supposed to be a main character. I wrote it in as a walk-on character to have someone to guide Daniel and Tina around the army, and she wouldn't get off the stage. <laughs> Kept coming back on again, saying, hey, I'm here, I'm important, I matter. And she ended up a main character. I love it when that happens. This has happened throughout all the books I've written in all the series somebody will come on that you just thought would be interesting for a scene or two, and you go, oh, no, wait a minute, there's mileage in this character. And sometimes they end up being the most interesting character in the book. Yeah, I mean, because she loves, um, it's, it's someone who knows how to, who loves a monster yet knows they're a monster and really understands that they're never going to, that's not going to return to them. She has no illusions about it. Right. But, as she said, you know, sometimes it takes the bad boy to make a good girl's heart beat that little bit faster. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that is Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated. And um, what about, uh, tell us a little bit, Bane's going to be putting out some Ishmael Jones books. I, I really like the, that series and we're going to, we're going to continue with it. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What our appetites, who, who is Ishmael Jones? He's, he's a, another, like something that, that, that treads the, the, the liminal line between two worlds. Yeah, basically, this started out, it was never meant to be a series originally. I was just going to do a one-off. Um, the idea was to do an Agatha Christie-style murder mystery with science fiction and supernatural elements. So I had my main character, Ishmael Jones, who is an outsider who stands back and sees things from the outside that other people don't see. And I did the first book, 
I'd been uh, appearing in uh, a play, uh, a Shakespearean play, and we were performing in the grounds of a manor house on the outskirts of my hometown, which is Bradford on Avon in Wiltshire. And it was a huge open setting, and it was a perfect setting for to do Shakespeare in the open air. But there were all kind of problems that, that made it, shall we say, not the most fun experience I've ever had. So I thought, right, I'm going to use this setting, and I'm going to do the most unpleasant murder mystery I can think of and set it in this setting. And that's what I did. And it, the book just poured out of me. And that was Dark Side of the Road, the first one. And this uh, went to my British publisher, Seven. And they said, oh, we really like this. Um, can we have two more? And I thought, oh, well, I hadn't thought. But, oh, OK, I'll do two more. And they came back and said, ah, they did really well. Can we have two more? Next thing I know, I got an ongoing series. <laughs> it actually turned out to be quite fun. That because it was an ongoing series, I was able to get more and more into the background of our main character, Ishmael. I don't want to, again, do spoilers. But he has a very unique background with a lot of back history. And as I'm going through the book, bit by bit, you're slowly becoming aware of who and what he really is. As he becomes who and what, because he has a huge gap in his memory that he doesn't know what happened. And bit by bit, we're slowly learning about what happened in his life to make him who and what he is, as he learns who and what he is. Yeah, we will. Uh, we're going to bring out the next Ishmael Jones, and we're also, um, as as they become available, uh, have the have the series um, come out as well again uh, with a Bane imprint on it. And I think that'll be so much fun. I think everyone could be looking forward to that. So, uh, what else can we say about Jekyll and Hyde? Um, I it's a wonderful, fun book. I mean, the one thing we should say is that um, it it has that Simon R. Green feel. There is a humorous aspect, and yet it's also utterly serious. Um, and it's and, and that's what sort of that tension makes it a lot of fun to read and keeps you 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 bouncing, keeps the energy up. Yeah. I've always had a, a great fondness for the horror comedy, but it's important that the horrific scenes are genuinely horrific and the funny scenes are genuinely funny. They don't detract from each other. You put them together and again, they actually bounce off each other. So Jekyll and Hyde, you've got the horror of the monster clan. You've got the action of when they, when they go into battle. You've got the humor, there's satire, there's funny. You've got the growing love story, if you like, between the two Hydes. And you've got a conspiracy theory as well. So you've got all kinds of things that are bouncing off each other and building towards, you know, uh, reveals and revelations as we go on. Um, I don't go out of my way to say, right, now it's time to put a funny scene in. I think if you're doing the job properly, the humor should arise naturally out of putting characters together and seeing how they work together or fail to work together. Um, Daniel and Tina, when they first meet, I think it's fair to say, do not get on. The very first thing she does is she throws a knife at his left eyeball and he catches it at the very last moment. And she just smiles and says, just testing, making sure you're a hide. <laughs> From that, they gradually learn to respect each other and they, and they learn from each other. He learns how to be a hide. And slowly, this wild child who'd never had anyone in her life who genuinely cared about her, gradually realizes that Daniel does care about her. And he does want to help her to move on from what is really a very sad and broken background. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, there's a lot going on in the book and it's, it's super fun. Um, great book out now at booksellers everywhere. Jekyll and Hyde incorporated by the great Simon R. Green. I will just say that I am currently working on my 71st novel. That is a lot of books, but I've been doing this for, it must be 35 years now. They, they do add up. Um, I'm not in J.K. Rowling's tax bracket. I have to keep working to keep the money coming in. But the bottom line is, I always wanted to be a writer. Writing is what I do full time. And... It's always the case. The reason why I do so many series is that there's always something new coming out. I think, hmm, here's something I haven't done. Here's something I haven't tried. Let's see how this will work out. And I just keep going. Well, may you write many more, and we will uh, be happy to read them. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Good to talk to you. Private Eye, Jake Sullivan, is a war hero and an ex-con. He's free because he has a magical talent and the feds need his help in apprehending criminals with their own magical abilities. Jake's talent is gravity spiking. He can vary the force of gravity however he wishes in an area. When it comes to spiking, Jake is the best. Now a rich beauty walks into his office to hire Jake to find her missing husband, a magical healer who has ties to the Detroit mob. Jake takes the case, but little does he know that there are plots within plots waiting to ensnare him, and solving the case may require fighting for his life, with the odds stacked against him. The entire audio drama is also available for sale at Bane.com and on Audible.com. Detroit, the American Paris, the city of champions, blimp town, motor city, call it what you want. Nearly two million people live in Detroit, but I was looking for one lost soul in particular. His name was Arthur Fordyce. He disappeared and his wife had hired me to find him. Arthur was a healer, a magical active who could fix anything from a broken pinky to advanced polio, very rare very valuable to certain people. My name is Jake Sullivan. I'm a private eye. I'm also an active myself. My talent is gravity spiking. I can do just about anything with gravity in my range of sight. Lift a ton of rock, make a man weigh 10 times his weight. I'm good at it. I taught myself a lot more than your average heavy when I was doing time in the Rockville Maximum Security Prison for Actives. Long story. After Emily Fordyce hired me, I had spent the past two days following up leads on Arthur Fordyce's whereabouts, but so far, zilch, the big zero. So I wasn't very surprised when Mrs. Fordyce called me to her mansion for a report. After all, it was her money I was burning. Oh, I ought to mention, Emily Fordyce was at least 30 years younger than her husband and a complete knockout. Mr. Sullivan, have you gotten any closer to finding my Arthur? I've got some feelers out, but so far, nothing. Feelers? How do you mean, feelers? 
I hired a finder to use that bloody scarf you gave me, and I paid a visit to Abraham Horowitz. The bootlegger? The same. He says he's gonna look into it and let me know if he locates Arthur, or the people he thinks have him. You believe he's dead too, just like the police. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have put it like that. Here, take this. Dry your tears. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sullivan. My pleasure. Mr. Sullivan, may I call you by your first name? Sure. What is it? It's Jake. Mine is Emily. Pretty. My father thought so. Before he ran off with a Broadway hoofer. So it was just you and your mom? Yes, mom. What a piece of work. But I don't want to talk about my miserable childhood, Jake. I understand, uh, Emily. I've had to face the possibility that Arthur might not be coming back. Don't give up hope. Something may turn up. In the meantime, I'm stuck in this house going crazy. Allow me to light that. Thanks. You have a cigarette too, Jake. You will this time, won't you? Yes. Thanks. Nice. I only smoke Galois. I'm a Parisian at heart, Jake. I've been to France during the war. That must have been terrible. It was not a happy time. We both have some pretty awful things in our pasts, don't we, Jake? We're two of a kind. Arthur is my security. He provides for me. But the truth is, he doesn't understand me. I think you understand me, Jake. Oh, Jake. What was that, Emily? I kissed you, Jake. Yeah, I noticed. Didn't you like it? Like has nothing to do with it. I'm working for you, and you're a married woman. You're right, of course. Pardon me. You've been under a lot of pressure, Mrs. Uh, Emily. Nevertheless, I think you'd better go. Yeah. Got an ashtray? Here. Thanks. You'll report to me when you find Arthur? Of course. Good night, Jake. Good night. I'll say goodbye here. I'm going to bed. I think you know the way out. Emily. Take cream and yours, Sullivan? Nah, black. Director Hoover sends his regards. He says to tell you that he appreciates the work you've done for the Bureau. I figure the more rogue actives I hunt down for Mr. Hoover and the Bureau of Investigation, the farther I am from ever being sent back to Rockville. You got that right. But I gotta say, when it comes time to arrest somebody who can bend the laws of physics, you're damn handy to have around. Thanks, Agent Kelly. So they put you in charge of the manhunt for the Maplethorpe gang. Well, Regional Director Price is technically in charge. Yeah, but Price is a slimy politician who doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground when it comes to criminal investigation. From your mouth to the ears of the angels. So you want my help? In addition to being bank robbers and killers, Johnny and Mikey Maplethorpe are powerful actives. 
Johnny is a shard. I don't have to tell you what that means. He can turn any part of his body into a razor-sharp knife and stick somebody like a pig. And Mikey Maplethorpe. He's a piece of work. A real psycho. They call him Snowball for a reason. Icebox? That's right. Two days ago during a robbery, he froze every molecule of water in some dumb-luck bank dick's body. Then he and Johnny Bones stomped on him and shattered the poor guy. That's cold. Literally. That's what I meant. Yeah, okay. So, one thing, the gang's getting worn down. One of them, Bruno Hartman, unfortunate thing happened to him on the bank job a week ago. He forgot to fill out a withdrawal slip? Nope. He got himself gut shot during the getaway. Turned out that was another guard who didn't try to run. Got him with a 38 snub nose. Good for him. Anyway, maybe the Maplethorpe gang is looking for a healer for good old Bruno. Might be a way to get at him. Or they might just let Hartman die. Well, as it happens, I'm looking for the Maplethorpes myself. For a client. What kind of client is that? A very rich one who prefers to remain anonymous. I'm trying to track down a healer, a good one. An active named Arthur Fordyce. Sounds like he might have been kidnapped by the Maplethorpes to heal their wounds. Listen, Jake, you've got sources I can't tap. You get any word on where Johnny Bones and Snowball might be, you'll give me a call? Sure, I'll consider it my civic duty. And your ticket to stay out of the slammer. Yeah, that too. Terrible coffee, by the way. Yeah, thanks. But, like we used to say during the war, it beats no coffee at all. Hey, you got a point there, Callie. In Rockville Prison, outside Billings, Montana, solitary confinement was getting sent down in the hole. The hole was where you got put automatically after a fight. Didn't matter if you started it or not. Get in a fight, go in the hole. I spent a lot of time in the hole. The hole was a shaft that had been dug 10 feet straight down into the solid rock with a 400-pound iron plate stuck on top for a roof. Wasn't wide enough for a man to lie all the way down. Once a day, they'd lower some food in a can of water. It hadn't been too awful in the summer, but being in a hole during the Montana winter was miserable. I have to tell you, I got to kind of like it. It was quiet, and I could think down there. I learned a few things in solitary, like how to concentrate the power within me, and how to blur the types of magic I could use. While I was in the hole, I taught myself how to sink a battleship if I had to, and how to fly. Sullivan! You are mine. Leroy, you're not the first man to say those words. <laughs> yeah, but you've never met an active like me. You're going down. And not the first man to say those words either. The thing is, I'm a fade. I'm never in one place. <sighs> and now, I'm over here. You can't hit what you can't catch, Sullivan. But I can cut the hell out of you. I'm gonna kill you, Sullivan. It'll be slow torture. Because I can travel through walls. And I can move through the ground. 
I can get inside of you. I'm gonna reach in and pull out your lungs. <laughs> you missed me. You gotta be faster than that. And I'm gonna slice you from the inside out so you're nothing but a big old sack of blood. And nothing more. Then, Sullivan, I'm gonna pop you! One problem fades have. They need to orient. <laughs> You're talking nonsense, Sullivan. Really? Maybe you ought to spend more time in solitary. Helps you figure out how things work. And what to do about them. Goodbye, Sullivan. I was gonna have fun. Playing with you. But now, I changed my mind. I think I'll just reach inside of your chest and take your goddamn heart! Whoa! What if down turns into up? What? Watch out for that lamppost, Leroy. Ah! Ooh, too late. Hell, down is easy. What if sideways is up? No, 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 no! Come on, Leroy, don't let that brick wall stop you. Just fade through it. That's right, you can't, can you? Gravity is changing direction too fast. Now this way. Now that. Now this way. Now that. Now up. Now down. Now sideways. Had enough, Leroy. I'll take that for a yes. Well, there it is. And there they are. Hey, Leroy, guess where we're going. If you happen to live, we're gonna each get a separate hole. Get up! Get up, you two morons! Get your asses up, I said. You're just a couple of wise guys, ain't you? Ain't you? This ain't getting up ever again, Sarge. Killed another, did you, Sullivan? Well, maybe we should say thanks, but you know that ain't how it works. You going to solitary, boy? You going to solitary for a long time? How you like that? I say, how you like that, boy? <laughs> I was just in the middle of a terrible dream. Oh, hello, little guy. Are you Jake Sullivan, sir? I am. Message from Mr. Horowitz, sir. Horowitz? And he sent you? I'm the best runner in the city. A notable distinction. Should I wait for a return message? Maybe. Let me read this. I'll be damned. Good news, sir? Depends on how you look at it. Yes, sir. No return message. Oh, here, let me tip you and you can be on your way. That's unnecessary. Mr. Horowitz covers our expenses very well. All right. Uh, say, kid. Yes, sir? I know times are hard, but 
You seem smart. There's a lot of things you can do. You don't have to end up a gangster. Oh, yeah? Well, I want to do it, so there. One day, nobody's going to boss me around. I'll be the boss. I see. But now you work for whoever pays you, right? That's right, mister. Well, it turns out I do have a message to send after all. But it's not to Horowitz. That don't matter. Doesn't. What's that, mister? That doesn't matter. Whatever you say, mister. Okay. Here's a message. But I want you to deliver it downtown. The big gray building, corner of Michigan and Cass. It's got to go to Agent Cowley. You got that? Cowley. He's on the third floor. Cowley? Sure. Mister, that's the federal building you're talking about. Yep. And the third floor is the Bureau of Investigation. Uh, hang on. Let me get my wallet. All right. Here's five bucks. Five bucks? It ain't like I'm delivering a wagon full of gold, mister. No, but you might be saving a life or two. You got it? Agent Cowley. Got it. All right. Off with you. See ya, kid. Or not. How about that? Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. Holed up in an auto parts factory controlled by the mustache Pete's. I guess like attracts like. Nah, I'm not going with just the 45. Time to break out the Lewis gun again. Ah, get ready for a house call, Johnny Bones. That was part two of Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas audio drama. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. And the snub ends of smoky days rolled into a ball taken up to Ambush Hill and tripwired to crush invading Visigoths and database consultants. Plus thanks and praise to Simon R. Green, author of Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 